Can you hear me? Yes. Well, good morning, ladies. Say this with me. We walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are the object of our faith and you always reward our faith. Whether it is tiny, 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 you reward it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we were on the mountaintop with the glorified Jesus. And when our passage today is taught, it always contrasts with the mountain bottom and daily petty aggravations. When I was 15, here comes Cheryl. When I was 15, I became a Christian at Malibu, Canada in young life. And I, woohoo, I came home on a mountain top. I was so excited. I was completely blissed out. And about a week later, I said something snarky to my grandmother. And she said, Rob, then you should go back to Malibu. You were so nice when you came home. So that was my mountain bottom. Well, today we begin by contrasting these two mountains. Jesus and the boys, Peter, James, and John, are coming down from the mountain of glory, and they are immediately confronted with the mountain metaphor of unbelief. We are given a contrast here by what the two fathers have spoken. From God's the Father's divine majesty, we hear on the mountaintop, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. There is not a parent or grandparent in this room that doesn't want to say that about their son or daughter. And some of you have the privilege of saying that about your son or your daughter. You get the sense here of intimate delight between the father and the son. But it is immediately contrasted with human misery at the mountain bottom when the father says, Lord, have mercy on my son. Between this father and his son, there is no opportunity for delight, only terror. This distraught father brings his son to the disciples and gets nothing. Verse 14, Matthew 17, if your Bibles are open. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, he said, have mercy on my son. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Not only are the father and the son helpless and hopeless, but they are in great danger. The son keeps throwing himself into the fire, and I'm sure this father keeps rushing to the fire to save his son, and then he throws himself into the river, and this father goes into the river and saves his son. This son needs constant attention, constant vigilance on the part of the father just to save his life. And Matthew here portrays the disciples as weak. They are never the heroes here. The real 
question is not if the boy will be healed, but why couldn't the disciples heal him? And the word could not here, which I've underlined, is the word unable. The root of the word unable is able. And the root of this word is power. And they had no power. We know that no power is the theme of this story because it is mentioned four times. We've just seen the mountaintop and the Father and his authority power, and now the disciples at the foot of the mountain with no power. And Jesus has had it. He says, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Okay, I want you to know this is not addressed to the father of this son. This is addressed to his disciples. And Jesus is speaking in his name, I, how long will I stay with you? How long will I put up with you? Now this is an echo of something that happened in Numbers 14, 11. Moses had been chosen by God to lead his people out of Israel. He gave them miracle after miracle after miracle. Finally, when they get out of Egypt, he parts the Red Sea, they go through, Pharaoh's armies chase them, the sea comes over, drowns them, and then he provides manna for them in the wilderness. Time after time after time, he has given his signs. And yet, at this moment, in Numbers 14, they want to go back to Egypt and stone Moses. And so, the Lord says to Moses, how long? Will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? He is pretty upset. But Moses says, oh, Lord, in accordance with your great love, I know who you are. You must forgive these people just as you have pardoned them from time they left Egypt until now. The Lord wants to destroy them. But Moses says, no, don't do that, Lord. And the Lord says, okay, I won't destroy them. I have forgiven them as you asked. So here we have this, this anger that God gets when people show contempt for what he is doing. But in the end, he forgives. Okay, so he says, Jesus says, bring the boy to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. Now, Jesus rebukes the demon. My family is plagued with afflictions that seem like demon possession. My husband's sister, who's four years older than he is, has been a severe grandma seizure epileptic since she was 13. And for the last 10 years, she's been unable to speak in, in a nursing home. Her issues have had great impact on my husband's family. I have a granddaughter who, has su who is suffering and has been suffering from an eating disorder. These have had great impact on her family. I have a grandnephew, my nephew's son, who is autistic and has to be watched constantly so he will not destroy property.
Faith and the best doctors have not cured these issues, and well-meaning people have said that these were demon possession. We ask the same questions as the disciples. Why can't we throw it out in Jesus' name? Now, a few weeks ago, Sergio preached about, uh, from Revelation, about the wrath of the dragon. And we live in our world under the wrath of the dragon. We have God the Father and his kingdom, which we've been hearing about, and then we have the dragon and his empire, and they fight like this, and then they fight with us, the dragon fights with us like this. So the wrath of the dragon is over all of us. We live in that time and period. So the wrath of the dragon may not be demon possession, but it affects epilepsy, eating disorders, cancers, autism. They're all under the wrath of the dragon, and we are in a cosmic battle with the dragon. Whoops, I didn't want to go there yet. So this verse, 18, has troubled me for years and years. And so when I was studying this, I said something, okay, what does Jesus rebuke the demon? And it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. What does that have to do with me? And how do I think about this verse? Well, first of all, there is a difference between the epilepsy that we experience today and demon possession. In our culture, demonism is not something we think of first. First, we go to doctors. In this instance, Jesus knew that if this was a demon, Jesus knows. He has the upper hand when it comes to knowing what is influenced either by the world's systems of evil, the flesh tendencies towards evil, or flat-out demon possession. It doesn't matter if we don't know which it is. We can all pray and must pray, deliver us from evil. Two, this particular instance in Matthew 17 is demon possession. So, um, we know that Jesus is going to have victory over it in this instance, even though this is trying to kill the boy. All of the other things that I've mentioned are anti-life and destructive forces bent on destroying innocent lives. Three, the world we live in today is surrounded by evil nationally and personally. There are big evils in national, between nations. There are political evils. And there is personal evil. The forces of pornography and sex trafficking and slavery and the dark web are big evils. And we need to pray against those big evils. But there is also surrounding us personal evil. And the only victory over evil is found in Jesus, which he proves in this story today. Faith and prayer is the cure to evil. Uh, it's not something that we have to work to do. It is the simple knowledge that Jesus has the authority over evil. Faith and prayer as the cure is best done in a believing group. I work with the inner healing prayer group in this church. We always pray in twos or threes. And that's why prayer around your table is so powerful because you have 
Sometimes someone at your table may not have the faith, but the rest of you do, and can pray for her when she's going through difficult things. It's so powerful when you as ladies pray. Six, Jesus always has the last word. When we don't see answers to our prayers, knowing that Jesus has the last word is our comfort. And the last word is always faith. Seven, or eight, if the answer is no or not now, Jesus plans to redeem the suffering for his glory. This is the main point right here. This is the heart of the suffering servant passage in Isaiah 53. And this is the heart of Jesus as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. Nine, Jesus' suffering and subsequent glory is the core of who he is. When he tries to prepare his friends for his suffering, all they want is his glory. But suffering and that leads to glory is who he is. And ten, our suffering and subsequent glory in him is who we are and will be. All these questions will be answered. But now the disciples don't understand why they couldn't heal the boy. When the disciples came to Jesus in private and said, why couldn't we drive it out? The word couldn't is unable. Repeat it again. I love, love, love that Jesus stops and has this debriefing moment with his disciples. This is so important to everything we do as a group. This is a vital part of growing as a person, as a leader, and as a Christian. And so I have some points about the debriefing that's going to take here that we can translate into our own lives. First, this debriefing is intentional. The disciples came to Jesus in private. Secondly, ask the question, why couldn't we drive it out? As a child, I, I had an older sibling, I won't mention any names, <laughs> who thought nothing of saying, every time I asked a question, she'd say to me, you're so stupid, how come you don't know that? Well, that stops you from asking questions, and it took a long time for me to admit I was ignorant and start asking questions. I have no problem now asking questions. Three, then you have to close your mouth and listen to the discussion. And I am sure Jesus was so pleased that his disciples came and asked him. It was part of his fellowship with them that they came and asked him. Yes, thank you, disciples, for coming and asking, because he's now going to tell them the answer that's going to bless people from then until now and into eternity. And then he wants us to find the deeper meaning. What is it about this failure that you want us to know? You see, the truth will set you free, but sometimes, first of all, it makes you mad. <laughs> and he says, you have a little faith. So let's, we're going to have a fifth point here, but I want to uh, look at this. Why couldn't we drive it out? And he says, because you have so little faith. The problem of little faith is when things come and we react with temper or vindictiveness 
or impatience. The solution is little faith that will move mountains. Because you have so little faith, little, I tell you, truly I tell you, if you have faith as little as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus is playing with words here. And it's little and little, little and little. What could be littler than a mustard seed? Little faith and a little mustard seed. What does he mean? How does this work? Well, Mark, here's the same passage in Mark 9. Then the disciples came to Jesus, arriving back home, and the disciples cornered Jesus and asked, why couldn't we throw the demon out? And he answered, there's no way to get rid of this kind of demon except by prayer. So Mark hears prayer. Now this is not a problem because faith and prayer work together. If your translation of Mark says prayer and fasting, fasting is not in the original. Because that puts a condition on our faith, and Jesus never does that. Fasting is appropriate, but not here in this instance. So let's go back to Matthew. Nothing will be impossible for you. So what is small faith able to do? If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say that this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. This mountain is a metaphor for what is troubling you today. And this particular picture was taken by my grandson. <laughs> What's the difference between the problem of little faith and the little faith that moves mountains? Jesus frees us from all self degradation because we think we don't have enough faith to solve our problems. And he says, it's not, uh, our faith is not strength in faith that makes God gracious, but God's grace that makes faith strong. Jesus does not want us to grovel in our inadequacies, but to know that even the smallest grain of faith throbs with the power of God. Nothing will be unable to you. Nothing will be impossible to you. Takes that word unable and changes it completely. This is the fourth time this word has been used and Jesus has transformed it into power. All right, so that we talked about the first four things in this debriefing. It was intentional. They asked questions. They listen to the discussion. They find a deeper meaning. And what's the fifth thing? Let the deeper meaning transform you. Jesus, as their leader and our leader, assures us, his followers, that faith is powerful. And he wants this to transform the way we live in prayer. I want this, I'm uh, going to share a quotation by Dale Bruner. Prayer is simply faith breathing. Faith is the inside, and prayer is the outside of one true relation with God. Thus, a little faith like a mustard seed is simply faith that says its prayers. It's a faith that breathes. Faith and prayer are united by the fact that they both look outside themselves for their power and neither trusts in its own competency. 
Both faith and prayer are openness towards God. Verse 22. When they came together in Galilee, now they've moved on, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. With the promise of nothing shall be impossible to you, from that mountaintop, they're into the pit again. And it's been my experience with mountaintops and pits, and pits and mountaintops, is that when you're in the pit, you think you're never going to get out. And when you're on the mountaintop, you're looking around saying, what's going to happen to this joy? When is the shoe going to drop? So I tell myself when I'm happy, nobody died today. Okay, Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with them that weep. I have had, I had a day when I got a phone call and a friend of mine had just had a grandchild and we rejoiced, we were so excited. And about 20 minutes later, I got a call from another friend who told me she was diagnosed with stage four cancer. So I wept with her, we prayed together, and I said, boy, this is a day rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those that weep. And that's what the Christian life is all about, is experiencing these highs and lows with those that we love. So let's notice here in verse 22, when they came together in Galilee. So this signals a new stage in the ministry of Jesus. And so we're going to just look where Galilee is. I promised Linda I would check off all the boxes. <laughs> so here we go. So Jesus has been up in this area. Went over here, that he had a Syrophoenician, he healed her daughter here, and then he goes in here and he feeds the Gentiles. And now he's coming back into Capernaum, he's going to go into Galilee, and eventually he's going to make his way down to Jerusalem. So this is the beginning of the end. We are headed into Jesus' last teaching before he goes to Jerusalem. Now all Jesus' sermons are directed towards his friends. If you watched the videos that I sent out during the snowstorm, you saw how Matthew wove together the five sections of teaching that Jesus taught that he uses in the book of Matthew. So I thought it'd be a good idea to quickly review them here. First of all, he teaches about God's kingdom being at hand in chapters 5 through 7, known as the Sermon on the Mount. And then his second group of teaching is in chapter 10, on how to announce the kingdom when he tells his disciples how to go out and that when they go, they should expect acceptance and rejection. The third group of teaching was in chapter 13, which I taught on the parables. So he has had some rejection, and so he starts telling his friends, this is what's going to happen to the kingdom, but he does it in stories, sort of hiding these truths in stories. And all of these parables talk about the different responses to his kingdom message. Some are positive, some are uh, neutral, and some are outright negative. All right, then now we're going to head into chapters 18 through 20, starting next week, teaching about the servant king, and that this kingdom is upside down. If you, the servant king, it, 
um, is honored by serving. And forgiveness takes precedence over revenge and making true wealth by giving it away. These are just some of the things that are coming attractions. And then finally, in May, we're going to teach on the kingdom clashes in chapters 23 through 25. So in, at church, we've been having the two kingdoms. We have the kingdom of heaven, and then we have the kingdom of the empire, which fights heaven and fights us down here on earth. So we have these clashes going on. And when we pray, uh, give, um, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are asking God to help us fight through this empire, the wrath of the dragon. So that's what we've been hearing. So um, then when Jesus says here, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, um, Christina pointed out that Jesus likes puns. Unfortunately, this is not a funny pun, but this is a pun, because the Son of Man delivered into the hands of men is a pun. And it's for emphasis here that the Son of Man, the creator of men, is going to be delivered into the hands of those he created, and they are going to try to destroy him. The Son of Man is the name tag that Jesus always uses for himself. And I gave you a handout at the beginning of the year as to what that means. So hopefully you have that. They can refer to it whenever he talks about the Son of Man. Okay, so here we have this double grief. And then he says, the third day he'll be raised to life, but the disciples don't hear it, and they are filled with grief. Okay. Jesus' friends are always to be led by the reality of what happens to the Son of Man. But in this passage, the Son of Man is passive, and he lets these men try to destroy him. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, He who did not spare his own son, you see, God was still in charge, even when those men think that they're in charge. He gave his son up for us all, and how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So this is now going to be illustrated in our final story in this passage today. It's a story about Jesus and Peter, and Matthew clearly loves this story, and so do I. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax come to Peter and say, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? And he says, yes, he does. Do you think he knows? <laughs> no. So, they want to embarrass Peter. So to understand what this grief story means, we need to know what the temple tax was. The temple tax was for every Jewish male, 20 years and older, and they were required to pay two drachma tax. And it was a support for the sacrificial offerings in Jerusalem. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was first to speak. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? You could hear a pin drop. Peter said, from others? <laughs> then Jesus says the children are exempt. But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake, throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it 
given to them for my tax and yours. Can you imagine the laughter that burst out in that room? First of all, you have Matthew, the tax collector, and the idea of finding the payment in the mouth of the fish must have just cracked him up. And then you have the fishermen who are thinking, and all those fish, we've never looked in their mouths. <laughs> this is Jesus' humor at its best. He, they were depressed, and now he brings a lightness and friendship and intimacy into this group. He enjoys his friends so much. This is a wonderful story of Jesus' love. He has the freedom not to pay the tax. He could have gone out there and said, I don't have to pay that tax because I am the God of the temple. But no, he makes a funny story of it to show his love, his compassion, and that he can provide for everything that they need. Okay, let's just quickly review this. First on the mountaintop, they saw Jesus' glory, and then what they do? They came down, and they saw failure at the mountain bottom. They couldn't heal the boy. And then Jesus tells them, nothing is impossible to you. But then they hear that the Son of Man is going to be murdered. They don't hear that the Son of Man is going to be resurrected. But then they learn, oh my goodness, we've got to pay guilt taxes. But no, Jesus says there is no guilt. I paid for it all. There's only my love. Jesus assures them and us that he will meet every need and that nothing will be impossible for you. Friends, we're ready for our song. <laughs>